Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10, is our text for today. This is one of the most beloved chapters in, well, really the entire Bible, and with good reason. It shows us Christ's heart in a very, very clear way. It lays open for us the unreserved joy that he, along with all of heaven, knows in seeing just one lost sinner come to him. It's a very uh, entreating passage in that way. And at the same time, there are some very important things we need to know about the ones that are received, the ones that are welcomed in. So let me invite you to turn your heart uh, with God's help to the reading of his word, Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the, Pharisee, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, we we come before you today and we we are we are encouraged, Lord. We are encouraged in the knowledge that your office and your ministry includes the illumination of God's word that precious, inspired, and errant word to our hearts. We pray that you would use the word we're about to hear uh, to draw many into your fold. Lord, I pray that there would be great cause for rejoicing today. Lord, I I lift up your church, uh, those that you have already so graciously gathered in, and Lord, I, I, I pray as we think about our pursuing Savior, as we think about his redeeming love for us, that our hearts would spill over with love in return, with gratitude, with humility, as we consider what you have done in Christ to rescue us. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 14, if you recall, concluded with Jesus saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
And what do we find on the heels of that? What's the first thing we see in chapter 15? We see that that Christ's sheep hear his voice, and he knows them, and they follow him. Jesus has been laying out the cost of discipleship, what it's going to take to follow him. And if you were with us last week, you remember that we said it's going to cost everything. It's going to cost everything to follow him. It will mean having him ever only in the place of supremacy in your life. It means taking up a cross. It means renouncing all that you have. And Jesus says that you really need to carefully consider the cost before entering into this whole discipleship thing. Uh, Following Jesus isn't something to be taken up casually, far from it. Now, you might look at those words and you might think to yourself, well, that would be enough to ward off everyone from following him. That the call, you remember, hate even your father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even your own life, that that would be all you'd need to say to turn everyone away. But we come to chapter 15 and verse 1, and we read, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. They were all coming. They were flocking to hear what Christ had to say. So so not those who knew their need, not the spiritually impoverished, not the, the spiritually sick and sore. They didn't turn. They didn't run. They wanted Christ. They still longed to be near him. They still wanted to to hear what he had to say. They still wanted to follow him. Now why? How do you reconcile those those two things? Oh, because they understood the glory of what was to be found in following him. They understood that the the glory of following Christ far outweighed, it far surpassed the cost of, of discipleship. If there was a cost associated with following Jesus, and, and there is, if there was suffering and affliction that was included in being counted as one of Christ's own They thought to themselves, well, so be it. They had come to see there was something far more precious, something far more glorious than even the loss of one's own life. In Christ, there's forgiveness of sin. These are people who had heard Jesus say to men like that, that paralytic, man, your sins are forgiven. Something more precious and more profound and certainly eternal than temporal healing. So they knew that in Christ there was cleansing and there was forgiveness of sins to be found. And that meant the possibility of reconciliation with the Father. It meant right relationship with God. Right relationship with the Creator that they were estranged from because of their sin. These are people who knew they didn't have that. They, they, they knew that they didn't have that. Apart from Christ, they knew they were sinners. They knew that they were wretched. No one had to tell them. They, they knew they couldn't get there 
on their own. They knew that they didn't have the merit. They knew that they weren't worthy to be in Christ's presence. You see that numbered in this lot were tax collectors. These are men who were notorious uh, they they were notorious for taking advantage of the of the system. We've seen this before, but I'll I'll just remind you. Essentially, uh, to be a tax collector to collector meant that you you bid on the opportunity to assess taxes for the the Roman government, and along with that came the prerogative to tack on uh, additional fees, uh, usually exorbitant fees of your own so you were essentially lining your pockets along the way in other words you were corrupt it just kind of came with the territory now on top of that many of these men were also jews you think of men like levi we know him better as as matthew or zacchaeus Um, and so these were locals in other words they were looked at like being traitors to their own people. They were scoundrels, and they knew it. But here comes Christ, and he preaches this message. He proclaims this glorious hope that no one is so notorious, no one is such a vile sinner that his grace cannot provide you a seat at the table. We're going to see in short order that that was a problem for the Pharisees, that Jesus ate with sinners. They didn't like that. Why? Well, one author puts it this way. He says that to understand what Jesus is doing and eating with sinners, it's important to realize that in the East, even today, to invite a man to a meal was an honor. It was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. In short, Sharing a table meant sharing life. That's what this this band of society's dregs came to find in Christ. They came to find life. They came to lose their life for his sake in order that they might find it. But you see what verse 2 says. It says that the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. They said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That word grumbled is, a, is an important word. It, it's a word that, that links the Pharisees in a, with, with a, a pattern you find throughout redemptive history. Particularly, it links the Pharisees with faithless Israel during their wilderness journeys. It's the same word the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses in Exodus 16, where the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumble against the Lord over his his dealings with them in their redemption out of the land of Egypt. They murmur and they complain and they, they act in unbelief even as they see his mighty deeds and his outstretched arm reaching toward them. Well, now, in Jesus' own day, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they see again the outstretched arm of God reaching forth in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes. And what do they do? They grumble. 
they complain. Isn't it amazing to see the, the contrast here between those who have ears to hear and those who are deaf to his voice? Uh, between those who have eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ and those who are blind to it. Both, both of these sides say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, for the Pharisees, those word, the words were words of condemnation. But their words of condemnation are our gospel confession. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Praise be to God. Hallelujah. He receives sinners. He receives people like us. What blessed news this is for sinners. Brothers and sisters, that's why we're here today. That this man, this God-man, Jesus Christ, receives sinners and eats with us. He welcomes us into his presence. Let's not ever, ever, ever forget that. That the reason we find ourselves here, the reason we find ourselves counted among the people of God is that Jesus is a friend to not the worthy, but to tax collectors and sinners. People who stand in abject need. Needy people is what we are, and we still are. Needy, needy people. Ought that not to to humble our hearts? Ought not that to overwhelm us with gratitude, praise, to the living God over what he has done. So great a salvation, Jesus Christ receives sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now the Pharisees grumble. They grumble for the same reason. This man receives people like them. Those words out of the Pharisees' mouth were not spoken with approval. They were spoken with scorn, with derision. Now, What's implicit in those words? I, I, I think there are a number of things that we can draw uh, from that, that comment, but there, there's, there's one idea, one big idea that I would suggest to you is the most prominent, and it's this. It's the matter of the Pharisees and scribes' self-understanding when they uttered those words. When they said, this man receives sinners, those those religious people, those Pharisees, they were exposing how they saw themselves. Out of the abundance of the, the heart, their mouth spoke, and they were saying, in effect, we're not sinners, at least not like that, at least not like those kind of people. They, when they looked down their nose and they, they pointed their finger at the kind of people that were gathering in mass to fellowship and to follow Christ, and they called them sinners, they were saying, in effect, you can't use that word of us. That doesn't apply. Don't lump us in with that crowd. Those people, they're the moral riffraff. They're the unfaithful. They're the undesirables. They're the, the dregs of society. Nothing at all like us. So it might look like on the surface they're making a commentary on who's gathered around Christ or the kind of people that Jesus receives, but it's just as much a commentary on themselves. It's a reflection of how they understood themselves. 
Now, I trust you can see the application here. Uh, This passage invites us so clearly to consider how we reckon ourselves. How do we understand ourselves? Are we over with the tax collectors and sinners saying, this is where I belong. I need Jesus. I need his mercy and grace. Look at my past. Look at all my sin. Look at who I am today. What a wretch I am. I don't have any hope of drawing near to the Father on my own. But I've heard some good news. I've heard that this man receives sinners. I've heard that this man receives people like me. I can come to God through him. Is that you? Or do you stand aloof with the Pharisees? Are you someone unwilling to humble yourself, able to only see how you measure up against other men? See, the the Pharisees had this self-understanding that was proud and it was puffed up. It was rooted in their performance. It was rooted in their their personal achievements. And they thought that they were doing pretty well. Of course, the problem for that is that they used other men as their standard when they they looked at themselves. That's, That's exactly what you have here. In chapter 18 of Luke, it says of the Pharisees that they they trusted in themselves, that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. Isn't that precisely the picture that you have in our passage today? On the one hand, they trust in themselves. They depend on themselves. They're self-reliant. The The foundation of their confidence before God is the shifting sand of their own moralism, their own deeds, behavioralism, external performance. It never occurred to them that there were men who stood in need of the grace of God, of his his mercy. You remember how the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, he praises God that he hasn't fallen into the kinds of scandalous sins that other kinds of men have. He says, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. In fact, he he goes on to give a list of just how well he's doing, uh, to recite Uh, this list of his performances. He says, I fast twice a week. week. I give tithes of all that uh, that I get. Well, where is the need of God's mercy when that is your self perception? That's the heart of a Pharisaical spirit. It does not see the profound sinfulness of one's condition before a holy God. It boasts in self and it treats other people with contempt. And that's why we see the Pharisees in this passage taking offense at the idea that Jesus should welcome the kind of people that he does. That was an affront to them. Why? Because they were the ones in their minds that deserved to be there. They were the ones they understood that had merited their way in that deserved to be welcomed, and so they shut the door of the kingdom of God in the face of other people. 
While Christ himself says, come and welcome, come and welcome. So you, you see what's happening here. On the one hand, you've got desperate, needy sinners clinging to Christ, uh, clamoring to be near him. They're delighted uh, to know they're welcome in his presence. They know they don't deserve to be there. And then on the other hand, you've got ones who are convinced they're the faithful few. They're the ones who are quite proud of their religious performance. And what are they doing? They're distancing themselves from Christ. Needy sinners are drawing near. Religious hypocrites are walking away. Again, dear ones, where do you find yourself today? What kind of self-understanding do you have of yourself today as you listen to the word of God? What is Christ's arrival into the world? His death on a cross tell you about your need. The Pharisees were, were angry about what they saw. And so Jesus told them a parable. Actually, he tells them three parables. Um, you've got a lost sheep in verses 3 to 7. In verses 8 to 10, there's a lost coin. And then in verses 11 to 32, there's a lost son. We're going to look at the first two of those today. Lord willing, we'll look at uh, the, the final of the third next week. But they're all a response to the grumbling of the Pharisees over Jesus's friendship with people like you and me, sinners. You could call this a defense of the gospel. Why Jesus receives people like us. First look at verse four. Jesus says, what man of you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the, country, in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Now the answer here is taken for granted. Everyone does. The upshot here being that they, they, they have a double standard. But I, I want you to see, before we get to the, the real thrust of what Christ is saying, just how... Uh, graciously, Christ entreats and pleads with those who are very much opposed to him. You see how he works to bring conviction to their heart, to awaken self-reliant, self-confident people to his redeeming love. There's a lot that we can learn as we think about Christ's approach um, in our own work of evangelism and, and soul winning, just looking at the way Jesus approaches men. He says, you actually live in such a way already that provides a view, a dim view, albeit, but a view of the son's dealings with sinners. There is a small scale shadow, Christ says, of my ways already in operation in your life, even though you're separated from me. You leave the 99 to go and find the one. And so do I. So do I. That's a picture of our Savior. That's a picture of the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who came to seek and save that which is lost. Now, the tragic part about this is that though the, the Pharisees and, and scribes may have acted this way in their personal lives, this kind of seeking heart 
this kind of compassionate ministry, interest in lost sheep, it, it, it wasn't reflected in, in the discharge of their ministry. The Pharisees are teachers of Israel. The, the scribes here are religious lawyers. They're, they're legal experts in the law of God, but they exercise their authority and their rule out of self-interest uh, for purposes of selfish gain, not for the sake of the flock. And this is, has been a, a long pattern in the history of Israel. It didn't start with them. In fact, if you'd like, you can turn to Ezekiel chapter 34, um, all the way back to Ezekiel 34 and beyond, the Lord chastises spiritual shepherds of Israel. And I, I'm going to read a passage of scripture for, there uh, with you. It's a rather extended uh, passage, so you're welcome to turn with me. Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 2. And this is what God says through his mouthpiece there. Ezekiel 34, beginning verse 2, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up, the strayed sheep you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they, are, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. You see the picture here. Those who have been charged by the Lord to shepherd his flock were abusive. They were derelict in their duties. And so what is God going to do? Uh, this is what the Lord goes on to say. If you skip down to verse 11, he says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down. Do you hear Psalm 23 there? It declares the Lord God, I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Now, there's one last question 
that is prompted by this, and that is simply this, by what means will God do that? By what means will the invisible God seek out his lost sheep? How will he accomplish the promises that he has given us here in Ezekiel 34? Okay, look at verse 23. He says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. You may or may not be aware, but this was written after the death of King David. Christ is the fulfillment of this passage. Christ is the true and better shepherd of Israel. He is the one who tends his flock like a shepherd, gathering his lambs in his arms. He is the pursuing savior who relates his, mess, his, his mission in the world in our passage in Luke chapter 15 to seeking out a lamb one of his own, something that is precious to him. He's not waiting for that that lost sheep to find its way back home, to wander back uh, to where the shepherd is. He goes out. He goes out to find them. He, Christ, is the active party in salvation. The sheep does not seek the shepherd. We do not go out looking for him. The Bible says that no one seeks after God. It might appear to you that way from your vantage point, after you've believed on Christ, that you've sought God, but no one seeks for God. Man searches for substitutes for God. We, we seek for cheap replacements. We, we look for idols to prop up in the place of God, but we don't seek for God. We run away from God. Isaiah 53 and verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And so what does God in Christ do? He comes after us. He seeks us. He pursues us. And when he is founded, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Christ rejoices over every lost sheep that is found. He delights in the salvation of his own. The Lord laid the iniquity of us all that we might be saved. The good shepherd, what does Jesus say in John chapter 10? He lays down his life, his very life, for his own. That is love. That is redeeming love. That is that love beyond comprehension. The Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians 3, the the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We can talk about it. We can sing about it. We can delight in it. We can revel in it. But in the end, it passes what we can attain to. It surpasses what we can understand in our finite minds. Could we, with ink, the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above, would drain the ocean dry. 
nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Those words were set to music by the German hymn writer Frederick Lehman in 1917. He found them scrawled on the walls of an insane asylum. They were scratched into walls by a man with a great many sins and a very troubled life who nevertheless came to know the redeeming love of God. He came to know the, the, the love of one who pursues one lost sheep. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. That is the love of our God. Christ, he makes the application in verse 7, and it's a bit surprising to see the direction Jesus goes here. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, the surprise is this. Actually, there's, there's a couple surprises in the application, a couple twists uh, to the story. First, the parable he describes is about the pursuit of a lost sheep, but the lesson that he draws from it is on the wandering soul's response to the seeking shepherd. You see the emphasis. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost, and now the question is presented, will you be gathered into his arms? 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 25 says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You, you return. That's what this word repentance in Luke chapter 15 is getting at. One sinner who repents does the proclamation of the gospel, this good news that Christ has been crucified on behalf of sinners, drive you to your knees? Does it give rise to godly sorrow, to the kind that leads to salvation without regret? When you hear that Christ receives sinners and eats with them. Now the big twist is is that the other 99, as we come to find out, do not represent those who are safe in the fold, but those who, who think they're safe. Jesus describes them as persons who need no repentance. Now young people, by that, Jesus does not mean to to indicate that he is talking about those who have already repented, that these are people who have confessed their sins or who are already saved. These are people who believe themselves to be righteous. They see no need for repentance. To put it in another way, they're in a state of self-deception. They are self-assured. So again, Jesus sets these religious people, these Pharisees forward as men who are unaware of their condition. Unaware of their condition before a holy God. They do not see themselves rightly. They're unaware of their need for salvation. How many men are in this condition today? 
They believe themselves to be in a, a very good state of affairs before God, and yet they are sick in their souls. Just like the Pharisees, they would put themselves in the circle of the righteous, not because of grace, but because of, because of what they've done, because of their performance. So what then do those who are in that situation need to understand? What is the appropriate response? What's the application here? Is it not to repent of your self-righteousness? To repent of your pride? Repent of the idea that you are spiritually well? Repent of your dead works and false religion? Repent of your love for the approval of man? and not for the approval of God. Repent of all of the time that you have spent polishing the outside of the cup while inwardly you're full of greed and self-indulgence and all manner of other things. Come instead to God as you are, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Christ came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you look at verse 18 or 8 and 9, we find an even more dire set of circumstances and that the woman here in the second parable, she loses a tenth of her possessions. In the previous scene, the shepherd loses one out of a hundred. Now this woman loses a full tenth of what she owns. On top of that, we can surmise that she's probably relatively poor In the first place, 10 silver coins is equivalent to about a week and a half's worth of wages. So she's living hand to mouth. And so like the shepherd, she goes to great lengths to find what's been lost. And what happens when she finds it? One word, joy. Joy. Now you can trace that theme throughout this whole passage verse 5 when he has found it the lost sheep he lays it over his shoulders rejoicing the whole picture of a shepherd taking the the sheep and throwing it over his shoulders rejoicing not not muttering to himself about all the trouble that he has had to go through not murmuring thinking Uh, What a waste of time this is. What a dumb sheep this is. But rejoicing, then calling his friends and neighbors together and throwing this great big party, the whole thing seems a, a bit over the top, doesn't it? Well, that's the point. Verse six, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me. The whole community rejoices together. Verse seven, joy in heaven. One repentant sinner is all the reason heaven needs to break into celebration. Verse 9, again, rejoice with me. Verse 10, joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Myriads of myriads, 10,000 times 10,000 angels, all of the heavenly hosts rejoice over one sinner who repents. So you have joy in Christ, joy in the people of God, joy in heaven. What a contrast there is in this passage when you, when you look at that and then you think back to the Pharisees. 
the Pharisees and the scribes. They've got all of their ironclad religious rules, their legalistic set of boundaries, all the things that tell them who's allowed in and who has to be kept out. But what do those on Jesus' side have? They've got joy. They know joy. And do you think that there is a reason that Christ, you could say, almost belabors the point in this passage? Does he not, by way of these words, aim to encourage sinners towards repentance? That we might know joy? That we might know true and everlasting joy in him? Dear ones, come to Christ. Come to the one who receives sinners today. Come to him in repentance and faith. Whether you are that that notorious sinner and you've got a a, a rap sheet, you've, you've got no hope of hiding, everyone knows about it, or you're the religious zealot and everything is buttoned up and tidy on the outside. Repent of your sin, repent of your self-righteousness, repent of your dead works that can't bring you to God, and come to him. Come to him just as you are, and he will save you. And not only will he save you, but he will rejoice with you. He will rejoice over you. All of heaven will rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, what a great God you are. Heavenly Father, how thankful we are for your word. Lord, how thankful we are for the good news of the gospel, for its power. How thankful we are for the Lord Jesus, that he is the good shepherd, and that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Lord, we praise you for laying all of our iniquity on him that we might be saved. Thank you, Lord, that you have made the way that we could be brought into your fold. Thank you that Jesus is the door of the sheep and that we can come through him. Lord, we we rejoice in that good news that if anyone enters by him, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Thank you for your saving keeping, sustaining power. And I, I pray that for everyone here, our lives would be gripped by the power of your grace. Lord, I pray that we would never lose sight of your redeeming love. Lord, I, I ask that the work of your spirit would take the truth that we have heard and that you would implant that within our hearts, use it, to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.